0: invite you to join me in your copies of God's Word in the book of Colossians. This morning we're going to be in chapter 3, uh, looking particularly at verses 15 through 17. Colossians 3, verses 15 through 17. I've been preaching through this for some time now on Sunday evenings, and so I want to situate us in some, uh, the proper context of the passage where we all know where we're at and what's going on. Paul, for a little while now, for for most of chapter 3, has been uh, really talking what we could call broadly, just it's a section on sanctification. If you look at chapter 3 of Colossians, beginning in verse 5 through verse 11, uh, Paul addresses what you might call the negative aspect of our sanctification, which is mortification. It's not a word that we we hear very often. It's not exactly something we use in our day-to-day speech, but it certainly a word that we need to understand and be well acquainted with. Uh, Mortification is our dying unto sin. It's the putting off of the old man, what some again would call that negative aspect, the negative dimension to our sanctification. And from verses 12 through verse 17, some of which will be in this morning, uh, Paul shifts to the positive aspect, the positive dimension of our sanctification, what's called vivification, And that's a word I think we use even less than mortification. But it's just as important. Vivification and mortification are two sides to the same coin. Uh, They're both parts, they're both the two edges of the double-edged sword that we could call sanctification. In our sanctification, our growing, our being renewed, our being conformed to the image of Christ, that growth that should be present in every Christian's life, day by day by day by day... We need both of these aspects. You have to have both. Mortification, the dying of the old man, and vivification, the the, the renewal, the, the coming to life, the putting on of the new in Christ Jesus. In verses 12 through 14, Paul laid down what has been set before us in our vivification, the task, if you will, that has been placed before us what it is that we are to do, what it is that we've been commanded and instructed to do. In our passage today, verses 15 through 17, it's still part of that broader section on vivification, but we're going to observe the tools that have been given to us to accomplish that task. And I, for one, am appreciative of when God's Word does this. If you've ever tried to assemble a a children's toy, especially one of those uh, uh, Fisher-Price electronics... Uh, ...maybe you're like me and you've tried to put it together at first without looking at the instructions... ...then you find how much incredibly more easy it is to put together if you actually look at the instructions. So I'm appreciative. Paul has done that for us this morning. He's told us what to do. And now, in these verses, he's explaining to us the tools that have been given to us... ...what we need to do to to be able to do that task, to accomplish that task. And so even though, though all of 12 through 17, more broadly speaking, is vivification... I separated it into two separate lessons, two separate sermons... ...because if you really look at the text... ...and I want us to notice this in a moment when we read the passage... ...Paul seems to separate this section, these verses 15 through 17. When we read the text in a moment, I want you to notice a few things. Keep an eye out for it. In each of the three verses that we're going to read in a moment... ...we find Christ explicitly mentioned. He is in every single one of the verses. We find a command to do something... And we find an exhortation to be thankful. I don't think that's a coincidence. Those three elements are present in each of the three verses. It's a a double set of threes. And we've talked about before, what does it mean when God's word repeats itself? It's important. Each has the same structure, the same elements. And so, if you would, we're going to pray one more time, ask for the God's blessing on the reading and the preaching of his word, and then we'll hear what he has for us. Let's pray. Almighty God, Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you. We thank you for this word that you have given us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that you saw fit uh, to give us this testament, to give us this collection of books and letters to let us know your will. In it, we find contained everything the Christian needs for life and godliness. What a blessing that is. Father, most of us have multiple copies, digital copies, multiple translations. Father, we thank you for your word. That we pray now that as we hear your word preached and read, that you would grant us eyes to see, ears to hear, and that you would soften even the rockiest and stoniest of hearts to be able to receive the word of God as it is preached. We pray it for your glory and your people's good. Amen. Colossians 3, we're going to read all of verses 12 through 17. Uh, But focusing particularly on those last three verses, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that this is indeed God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Hear it now. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, even as the Lord has forgiven you, ...do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus... ...giving thanks to God the Father through him. The grass withers and the flowers fade... ...but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Amen. Having the right tool for the job... ...I would say is is pretty important. Sometimes you can get away uh, with whatever you have. Sometimes you can make do. You know, sometimes if if you're working on your vehicle... And uh, you need a hammer if you've got a big enough wrench. I have found several times that that can also be a hammer in the moment. But there are oftentimes, I would argue most of the time in life, it is crucial to the success of a task or its failure that you have the right tool for the job. Last week, I got a great example of this from my own son, which tends to be uh, the best examples that stick with me and Carly. Uh, Carly was outside sweeping off the leaves that have been falling that have piled up in our driveway and our steps because our children, no matter how many times we exhort them, watch your feet, look at your feet, don't run so fast down the hill. They never learn. They still sprint headlong because they're so excited to go outside, which more often than not results in bumps and bruises and boo-boos. And so Carly was outside sweeping the leaves off the steps and that first part of our driveway and Liam being the good Big brother, the, the natural born big helper that he is, uh, Liam started helping. We could put you know helping in some air quotes there. He was determined, he was motivated, y'all he had all the right attitudes that you would want in a helper, in a worker. He had a good, optimistic attitude. But but quickly, very quickly, he became very frustrated with himself. Lately, when Liam gets pretty upset in himself, this has been happening for about a month now, if he's trying to do something, whether it be a puzzle or playing with a toy, or in this case, helping out Mama, uh, if he can't do it, he'll get so frustrated that he drops whatever he has in his hands and he balls up his little fist and he just goes, hmm, and he'll do it repeatedly. And we have to come over and explain to him, it's okay, bud. Well, well that's what he did. He got so frustrated, not a few minutes into trying to help Mom, that hmm, and he, he threw it down. That's exactly what he did because he realized after a few attempts that no matter how hard he swept, no matter how much his attitude was in the right place, that the stick he was using wasn't going to get the job done like the broom that mama had. Having the right tool for the job is pretty important. And in our passage today, Paul is making sure that we understand that God has indeed given us the right tools for the job. The job being our sanctification, our vivification. And so what are the tools that we have been given in the pursuit of our vivification? I have three for you this morning. The peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and third and finally, the name of Christ. Those are the tools that God has given us to help us in our endeavor. And so first, we look at the first tool, the peace of Christ that we've been given. Look with me, if you would, at verse 15. Verse 15. Paul writes, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. It's the first tool we've been given, the peace of Christ. And and, and what job is that for? Well, really, what Paul is focusing here on is unity in the church. The unity of the body of Christ. And how do we... How do we accomplish that? How do we strive after that? How do we keep the peace within the body of Christ? The peace of Christ is what Paul offers us. And this is a topic that Paul has already discussed multiple times in this little letter. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 18, and again in verse 24, Paul spoke of the church as being... I really think it's Paul's favorite metaphor. He uses it in other books. He speaks of the church as being the body of Christ... Really what Paul is doing there is he's giving a sermon, he's giving a lesson on unity without really having to get into it. If we are a body, we are one. In chapter 2, verse 19 of Colossians, he refers to the church not only as the body, but he really focuses there on the necessity of unity within the church. It's essential. In chapter 3, verse 11, Paul wrote that within the church, there is no longer Greek nor Jew circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Paul argues Christ is now in all and is all unity. In verses 12 through 14 alone, Paul used the phrases one another and together four times. He's really trying to bring home the point here, the emphasis and the importance and the necessity of the unity of the body of Christ. And I think it seems likely that this might have been such a pressing issue for Paul. Why why mention this one subject so many times in such a short letter? I think it might have been such a pressing issue because of the false teachers that were prevalent and around at the church in Colossae. Those false teachers were doing what false teachers are great at doing. Stirring up division. Creating factions and fractions within the church. That's what false teachers do. And so Paul is really trying to stress the opposite. That as he begins to focus in this passage on mortification and vivification, on Christian holiness and the the pursuit of sanctification, Paul is making clear that we understand that we have a duty, a holy Christian duty to be one with the body, to be united with the body. Not fractitious and contentious with the body, but united with the body. And so we could understand really what Paul is trying to communicate here is that as we progress in our holiness, at least in Paul's mind, as we grow in our sanctification, as we day after day are being conformed more and more to the image of the Son, one of the things that we should find happening in ourselves is that we too will begin striving more and more for unity within the body, not division what is the tool that has been given to us to accomplish such a difficult task and it is a difficult task he says it's the peace of christ paul writes that to do this we must quote let the peace of christ rule in your hearts i want us to notice a few things from the word choices that paul uses here notice first that yours plural it's the peace of christ in your hearts paul isn't talking to you brother and sister as an individual but he's talking to us as a body it is something we share among the body it's ours together And, and if you really think about it that's common sense how can you be a peaceful person if you never interact with other people right the peace of christ is something we share as a body of christ paul doesn't speak of it as an individual gift but as a corporate one and i think this is important that we understand this too often maybe ...due to the individualistic nature of our culture. I think too often we think in individual terms... ...even when we're reading God's word. But so many of the blessings that God has granted His people... ...are corporate. Involving the body, necessitating the body. Not just the individual. One way to see this... ...one way for us to understand this... ...is that there is both a vertical and a horizontal dimension to the peace which Christ has granted us. There's both a vertical and a horizontal dimension to that peace. And I think we should be well acquainted with the vertical dimension. It's really the gospel. You have peace. You have peace with God. Is that not the gospel in a nutshell? You who were an enemy. You who stood opposed. You now, through the blood of Christ through what Christ has done on your behalf, you now have peace with God. You have been reconciled. You, who were an enemy, have now been brought into and made a part of His family. That's the vertical dimension. But there's both a vertical and a horizontal dimension to the peace which Christ has granted us. You have peace. Peace with God, yes. But also, peace from God that enables you to live at peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ. We might be quick to say, but some of them are really difficult. We might be quick to think, some of them are pretty annoying and frustrating. God's aware of that. God is well aware of that. And I would just add in here, God is well aware that he also felt that way towards you for a while while you were his enemy, and yet he granted you peace nonetheless. But he's aware that it's difficult. And that is why he has given us the perfect tool... To accomplish this task, the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. That peace which surpasses all understanding is not just a peace which surpasses all understanding in that, you know, we have peace with God. How, how does that happen? How do we have that? Yes, but also it's a peace which surpasses understanding when people come here and they see people of various colors, people of various backgrounds, people of various cultural affiliations all together as one body all together worshiping, singing, praying, reading as one body, it baffles the mind of the unbeliever. He says, let it rule. Rule here literally means arbitrator. I really like how Thayer's Greek lexicon defines it because it's a word picture. That rule here, Thayer says, is literally to be an umpire. So Paul is saying, let the peace of Christ be an umpire in your hearts. Parents, I think, all too well know the task of arbitrating, of being an umpire. When our boys are fighting, which is pretty often, as Sammy has gotten a little bit older, right, he's begun to be able to challenge Liam. And so when they're fighting, whether it be over a toy car or a book or a bottle or a trampoline or who's sitting where or who's on whose side of the car, I could really just go on and on and on. When they're fighting, Carly and I have to step in. We have to arbitrate. We have to play the umpire. And not just to stop them, but to come alongside them and and explain. To help them understand, to remind them, right? That's your brother. You know, you should share. You should be nice. You can't punch your brother in the face, right? Like, he's your brother. That's what the umpire does. That's what the parent does. That's at least what we have to do all the time. Why? It's in order to keep the peace in the household. To keep the peace in the family. And the peace of Christ, Paul is saying, has to be the umpire in our hearts as a body of Christ. When we begin to feel angry with a brother or frustrated with a sister or annoyed or even wrong, the peace of Christ should be there. The peace of Christ is there to help us understand, to explain, to remind us, to remind us that we had done far more wrong to God than whatever that brother had done to us. And yet he forgave us and loved us. And notice that command tacked on by Paul. And be thankful. It's not random. It's actually critical. It's crucial to the command here to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Thankfulness actually is one of the main things that preserves this peace among the body. Instead of envying your brothers and sisters when the Lord seems to show them particular favor, instead, Paul is arguing, be thankful. Be thankful for his mercies which he has shown to every single one of us. Instead of being angry with your brothers and sisters when they seem to have done you wrong, be thankful for his grace and his mercy that he has shown to each of us when we have certainly done him wrong. This is an imperative. It's a command from God's word to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Matthew Henry makes a good point here. And we'll end the point, this first point, with this. He says, We are called to this peace, to peace with God as our privilege, and peace with our brothers as our duty we can think of it like this. You really can't have one without the other. It doesn't work that way. You you can't pick and choose. The whole idea here is if you have been given peace with God, you will strive for peace with your brothers and sisters. And I think the inverse is likely true as well. If You find that individual who seems to constantly be stirring up division, constantly causing fractions and factions within the church, constantly shunning the unity of the body and stirring up problems, there might be a good chance that they don't have the other peace that was a part of it, the peace of God. The first tool we have been given in the pursuit of our sanctification and vivification is the peace of Christ. And the second, Paul tells us, is the word of Christ. Look with me at verse 16. Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Notice some of those words that Paul uses. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. It's not just there for a moment. It dwells. It takes up its residence. Let it dwell in you richly. Not poorly, richly and with all wisdom. This word that we have translated in most of our translations, at least my ESV, as dwell, actually conveys more so the idea of keeping house. It can literally be translated to keep house. And not not the idea of a servant or of a maid or or, someone you hire to come clean your house. But rather as the master of the house, as the head of the house. The one who's in charge. Paul is saying, let the word of Christ rule. The word of Christ should rule in this house in your house as an individual and in our house as the body of Christ it is the word of Christ which takes up residence. It is the word of Christ which should permeate. It is the word of Christ which should call the shots and it's not superficial Paul doesn't say let the word of Christ dwell in you poorly or just a little bit. He says let it dwell in you richly. This conveys the extent that the word is in us that we are full, that's really the idea that we're being made full on the word of God another way that we could understand this is abundantly or copiously so how do we understand this then what is Paul asking of us, what is Paul commanding of us well, I'll ask you this would you be satisfied to only eat food on Sundays and fast the rest of the week maybe you're stronger willed than me, I wouldn't be I'd make it about to Monday morning at 8 o'clock, and my stomach would be growling. By Tuesday, I would be useless, utterly useless. No, you eat every day, three meals a day. When you wake up, you might be one of those people who aren't a breakfast person. I think you're objectively wrong. It's the best food. It is the best type of food. It's the best meal of the day. But maybe you're more like me. Most nights, I go to bed looking forward to breakfast thinking about breakfast carly carly could tell you if you ask her more nights than not one of the last things i usually say as i'm getting in bed is so what are you thinking about cooking for breakfast in the morning right what what are we having i love a big breakfast you know a a piece of toast or a pop-tart ain't gonna cut it that's not breakfast that's not breakfast in our family more mornings than not we cook a big breakfast i'm talking eggs bacon sausage grits pancakes if I'm really lucky, maybe, maybe biscuits and gravy on a nice cold morning like this. Even if breakfast isn't your thing, I would assume that you probably still eat three square meals a day, most of you. Right? You need three meals or you're not going to be full. If you tried to go without your food, do it a day, two, th- what, three days maybe? You're going to become almost useless Your work is going to suffer, your muscles and your brain is going to suffer. If you go long enough, eventually you waste away and perish. This is the idea that Paul is conveying to us here, that the word of God is to dwell in us richly. We're to be made full on the word of God. Richly, abundantly, copiously. We're to fill ourselves with the word. Why? Because as Christ himself said, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So then, following the example, we should go to bed looking forward to reading and studying the Word the next morning. A a one-verse-a-day approach shouldn't cut it. That's the Pop-Tart or Toast equivalent of reading the Scriptures. You should not be satisfied with that. Go after the big breakfast. Make time for His Word. Look forward to His Word. Take it in like you would a spread of bacon and eggs and grits and toast. And as you grow in your sanctification, just as we eat more than one meal a day, I think you will find that as you grow in the faith, you will begin to desire his word at multiple times a day. This is why men like Robert Murray McChaney, what a gift to the church that brother was and is. This is why in his reading plan that has been so widely distributed and utilized especially among Presbyterians and Reformed folk, he has two readings of the scripture a day. Not because he felt like he had to. He desired and yearned to be in the Word more than once a day. He sustains us. He nourishes us. Let it dwell in you richly. Be full. And Paul writes that it should dwell in us in all wisdom. Matthew Henry here points out something I think that makes a lot of sense. He writes that the Word of Christ must dwell in us. Not in all notion and speculation to make us doctors... But in all wisdom, to make us good Christians and enable us to conduct ourselves in everything as becomes wisdom's children. In other words, if the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly in all wisdom, it's not just going to be something that stays up here. It's not just going to be for speculation's sake. It's not just going to be for the sake of impressing people with your broad theological knowledge. It's for doing, it's for living, it's, it's practical. It affects the way we live. In other words, Paul is arguing, Matthew Henry is saying, and I think he's on point here, that you should walk the walk and not just talk the talk. That if you're truly taking in the Word of God in a full manner, in a wise manner, it will permeate throughout your life. But what's the point of hearing if you don't do something with it? Now, how do we do this? Yes, by receiving the Word of God through faithful preaching and through personal readings and studies. But also... Also, notice Paul says here... ...by teaching and admonishing one another. This means that teaching and admonishing... ...brothers and sisters... ...is not just the job of the ministers. It's not just the job of the elders. It's actually a task that each one of us... ...who have been called by Christ... ...who have been saved by Christ... ...we have a duty and a privilege... ...to be a part of that. 1 Peter, his whole argument... ...Peter's whole argument in that chapter in 1 Peter... ...is that you have been procured... ...why have you been saved? ...to proclaim... And so then when we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, we do it not just by hearing it, not just by studying it, but actually by by sharing it with others. And what's one of the ways that we can do this? Paul gives us a specific example, and it might not be something that you would think at first glance, at first thought. Paul says one of the ways that we do this, that we share the word with those around us, is through our singing, through our worship, through the songs that we sing, brothers and sisters, did you know this, that you're teaching those around you? There's a sense then, brothers and sisters. Paul is saying, our worship is vertical. Just like there was a vertical and horizontal dimension to the peace of Christ, there's a vertical and horizontal dimension to our singing. Yes, we sing ultimately to bring praise to God for His pleasure, according to His will, not our own. This is why we shouldn't come to worship saying things like, I don't prefer this worship style, or I didn't like that song, I'd enjoy it more if we did this. That's okay, because we're not coming here to worship you. I'm not coming here to worship me. We come here to worship God. It's for God. It's vertical. But there is a sense, absolutely, that Paul is arguing that our worship is horizontal as well. Our worship, our singing, more specifically... Your worship, your singing, ministers. Did you know that? It teaches and admonishes those around you. And I think this means a few things for us. First, it means that the content of our worship is far more important than the style of our worship. The content of our worship is far more important than the style of our worship. And so then, whether it's a 500-year-old hymn or a worship song written a couple months ago, whether it's sung a cappella or with an organ, or with a guitar. What is most important is the content of the lyrics. The doctrine being conveyed, sung, and taught in the song. Understand, brothers and sisters, the sermon is not the only part of the worship service that teaches and proclaims a message. Every song you sing does the same thing. The songs do as well. The second thing I think we can take away from this And I'm going to pick on my brothers and fathers in the faith for a moment. Singing is not optional. It is a congregational duty and privilege. And I really do have to focus a little bit on my fellow brothers in Christ here. My fathers in the faith as well. Our singing is not just something one person, a music director or a choir or a worship team does. Those things are wonderful blessings. Wonderful blessings that can assist us in our congregational singing. But they shouldn't detract from. They shouldn't take away from. A a good choir, a good music director, a good worship team assists the body and helps us sing better as a body. They shouldn't be the primary. They shouldn't dominate. Our worship must be congregational. It must be corporate. We think of churches where the majority of the music is solos and quartets. I love a good solo or a good quartet. Baptist Church I grew up in had a good bit of quartet. Some really gifted men. But it shouldn't be the case as it was so many times where that was the majority of the music that happened. Where the congregation, the entire worship service was just sitting and observing. That's not the worship that has been asked of us. We can think of churches where every light in the congregation is dimmed. The congregation is darkened, blacked out. And there's spotlights on the worship team. What message is that teaching? What what sermon is that proclaiming? Singing is not optional. It's a congregational duty and privilege. And third and finally, the enthusiasm and devotion with which you sing proclaims a message about what you believe. And that works both ways. Your singing, whether or not you're doing it, and how you're doing it, preaches a message to those around you. And I'm not talking about the skillfulness with which you sing. Praise be to God that the Lord desires a joyful noise. He didn't say it had to be a good one. But how you are singing preaches a message. God commands us to sing to him a joyful noise. And Paul says here also with thankfulness in your hearts. And again, i got to direct the attention a little bit to my brothers and fathers in the faith. You fathers and husbands in the room we are so much more often as men guilty of this than the women, are we not? What message am I as a husband and as a father proclaiming to my family, to my wife and to my children when I sing to my creator and savior with less enthusiasm than I would show at a football game or a sporting event? That preaches a message. Your children, your spouse takes a lesson away from that. And on the other end, Think of the beautiful message you are preaching over your family, to your wife, to your children, to the visitor that might be here this morning when they see you Sunday after Sunday after Sunday singing your heart out to your Lord and Savior with joy and with thankfulness. You are teaching. You are admonishing. You are, in a sense, brother and sister. Every time you sing, every hymn we begin to sing as a body, you are preaching You are admonishing, you are teaching a message to those around you. So let it be a good one. In the pursuit of our vivification, we have been given the tools of the peace of Christ and the word of Christ, and third and finally and quickly, the name of Christ. Paul writes in verse 17, whatever you do, that's pretty all-encompassing. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What does it mean to do something in Jesus' name? I've got family members on my dad's side uh, that are thoroughly uh, Pentecostal, uh, thoroughly Pentecostal. Uh, and one thing that I noticed was always present uh, among that side of the family is, man, they would tack on in Jesus' name to the end of almost anything. Right? It was this idea that if they tacked on in Jesus' name that they were like bringing it into reality. Maybe you've heard the phrase speaking it into existence So I want to make clear, first of all, that that is not what that phrase means. In Jesus' name, it's not not some type of Harry Potter spell that you can throw on to the end of of a sentence and and it brings it about. That's not how it works. In fact, I would argue that's likely a third commandment violation. When you throw it on to the end of everything and tack it on to the end of everything, you're taking his name in vain. No, to do something in Jesus' name we can think of it this way, is to do it for his name. It's to do it for his sake, for his glory, for his honor. Again, Matthew Henry puts it a little bit better than I think I could. He says, to do something in Jesus' name is to do it according to his command and in compliance with his authority, by strength derived from him with an eye to his glory, and depending upon His merit for the acceptance of what is good and the pardon of what is amiss. What is it to do everything that we do in Jesus' name? It's to live out Romans 12. To be that living sacrifice in everything you think, everything you speak, in everything you do. It's living your life in such a way that the thoughts that you think, the words that you speak, the actions that you do, that they bring glory and honor to Christ. Not shame. Not shame. ...and dishonor and reproach. Living your life in Jesus' name... ...is living your life in such a way... ...that instead of asking how far is too far... ...where is that line that I can go up to it and touch it... ...but not fall into sin... ...instead of asking it that way... ...it's instead asking what can I do... ...what can I think... ...what can I say in this particular situation that will bring the most glory and honor and praise to my Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. It's remembering constantly that we exist primarily for His glory, not our own pleasure. It's remembering that God desires your holiness, brothers and sisters, more than your momentary happiness. And one of the best ways to do this, Paul gives us here. Paul gives us the best way to do this consistently. He writes, giving thanks to God the Father. I know it might sound corny, sometimes it's overused, but it's good and it's biblical. Having an attitude of gratitude is the answer here. Having an attitude of gratitude to the Lord, learning to be content and thankful like Paul was in all things, fostering that in yourself so that it becomes the norm, the consistent, it enables you to live a better life for Christ. Gratitude and thankfulness. They are the enemies, brothers and sisters, of entitlement and bitterness. Whatever your lot, remember, to quote one of our dear sisters, remember, whatever your lot, that you are certainly better than you deserve. God has indeed given us the right tools for the job. That's what the Lord offers to you this morning. In the pursuit of your vivification, He has graciously granted you the peace of Christ the word of Christ, and the name of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for prayer. Father, we pray that as we go throughout this week, as we leave this place, that we would take your word, that we would take this message with us, that we would not leave it, that we would not forsake it, but that we, as Mary did, would treasure it and store it up in our hearts. Father, we pray that you would help us to live these things out a little bit better tomorrow than we did today and so on and so forth to the glory and the name and the praise and the honor of King Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.